Please take out your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. Let's talk about death. We need to talk about death. We have been surrounded by death lately. There was an article in the New York Times on Thursday about how Central Queens has become the epicenter of the outbreak here, the the epicenter of the epicenter. It opens, in a city ravaged by the virus, few places have suffered as much as Central Queens, where a seven-square-mile patch of densely packed immigrant enclaves recorded more than 7,000 cases in the outbreak's first weeks. A group of adjoining neighborhoods, Corona, Elmhurst, East Elmhurst, and Jackson Heights, has emerged as the epicenter of New York's raging outbreak. Well, that's basically here. That's a few blocks behind me in that direction. Uh, That's where many of you are right now. That's where many of you live. We are surrounded by death. Uh, These are some of the numbers that I found. This is just for our state. Most of these are are in our own city. This is our home. 562 deaths on the second, 630 deaths on the third, 594 deaths on the fourth, 599 deaths on the fifth, 731 deaths on the sixth, 779 deaths on the seventh, 799 deaths on the eighth, 779 deaths on the ninth. Those are all people, those are all friends and family members. We know some of those people. And when I read that, I can't help but think of Genesis chapter 5 and the refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, over and over and over again. Death is one of the main themes of Scripture. The possibility of it is introduced in the second chapter. The spiritual reality of it in the third chapter. The physical reality of it in the fourth chapter. Then the repeated death refrain in the fifth chapter. And then the flood in the sixth chapter where everyone dies. Death dominates the beginning of the story. And it sure seems like death dominates right now. We are surrounded by death. Everyone is talking about death. But not everyone is talking helpfully and truthfully and biblically about death. So this Resurrection Sunday, I want to take this opportunity to talk about death. And I, as we often do, I want to open with a question that I want you to be considering this morning as we look through God's Word. And here's the question. Are you ready to die? Are you prepared to die? That was a question in the past that Christians considered regularly. Puritan pastors were famous for asking their people, are you ready to die? Maybe we today should resurrect the practice of asking ourselves and each other, are you ready to die? The Puritan Edmund Burke writes, every Christian has two great works to do in the world, to live well, and to die well. Thomas Cranmer, the great author of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, writes this. This is for their use in their burial services. It says this, Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He fleeth as it were a shadow and never continueth in one stay. In the midst of life, we are in death. 
of whom may we seek for succor, but of thee, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. In the midst of life, we are in death. We haven't always believed that in our comfortable uh, Western uh, American culture. Maybe we're feeling and believing it right now. That's an opportunity. Charles Spurgeon says, We are flying as on some mighty eagle's wing, swiftly on towards eternity. Let us then talk about preparing to die. It is the greatest thing we have to do, and we have soon to do it. So let us talk and think something about it. That's my goal this morning. What a great opportunity on this day we set aside to celebrate life coming in the midst of a pandemic that confronts us with death to talk and think some together about death and preparing to die well. Why do that from Romans chapter 8? Well, one commentator summarizes all of chapter 8 under the heading of freedom from death. Romans chapter 8, arguably the greatest chapter in the whole of Scripture, lays out for us the great hope of the Christian, the great freedom of the Christian. And that freedom, as we often define it today, freedom to do whatever we want, with whomever we want, whenever we want, that's not freedom. But Romans 8 is about true freedom, freedom from sin and death. So, like with the Psalms, Part of what I hope to encourage you to do this morning is to begin to spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 8. I have never done a great job with extended scripture memory, of scripture memory of large chunks of scripture. I've been working on it, and I started with this chapter. I've memorized chapter 8, and I'm going to try. I've never done it publicly. I'm going to try to recite the first 11 verses for you. Hopefully not out of pride, look what I can do, Uh, but hopefully to encourage you that you too can memorize large chunks of Scripture if you just give it time. I have been immensely blessed by having this chapter lodged in my brain, especially in this last month. Are you using any of your extra time right now to fill your mind with Scripture, to practice the memorization of scripture. I hope to encourage you to do that this morning. But Romans chapter 8, I hope, will go a long way in helping you answer the question, are you ready to die? Or consider the question this way, is it safe? Are you safe? That's the question we are all asking right now. Isn't it? That's why we won't leave our homes. That's why we practice social distancing. That's why we wear masks and gloves. Is it safe? There is a physical virus out there that threatens our physical lives. We should be concerned about that. We should do everything that we can within reason to stay safe. But what about our spiritual lives? Are those safe? Our bodies are in danger. And so we rightly take these drastic steps to protect them. But what about our souls? Our bodies are in danger, and many are tragically succumbing to the danger. Many are dying. And so we rightly seek and long for a cure, a vaccine, a remedy for the virus. But what about for death? Is there a remedy? Is there a cure? Again, not for the virus, as great as that would be, but is there a remedy 
for those with the virus who are standing at death's door wondering what's on the other side? Is there a remedy for all of us who will be in that exact same position at some point in time, either sooner or later? We talk about saving lives, and that's good. But let's not forget that all we're ultimately doing is delaying deaths. Are we ready for those deaths? Are we safe? And how can we know? Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We're going to do a woefully insufficient overview of this text that should get about 20 sermons. And we're going to do it with no outline today. We're just going to walk through the text seeking to answer the question, how can we be safe? How can we be ready to die? If you're new to this or you're just joining us, um, I'd encourage you to open up a copy of the scriptures. If you don't have that in front of you, uh, send us a message and we'll give you one. But you can pull it up online or on your phone. Turn to Romans 8. Uh, We believe that God's word is living and active. It's alive. So I hope to be pointing you to that word throughout this message. How can we be ready to die? Hear the words of Romans chapter 8. Verses 1 through 11, this is what God wants to say to you today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you would, bow with me and let's begin uh, with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of life. Father, we thank you for the blessing of our physical lives. Thank you for uh, protecting us and and sustaining us. Um, Father, we are, though, also in the midst of much physical death. So I simply ask that you would, at this time, help us to take that fact seriously. I pray that you would help us to consider the reality of the impending death of every single one of us. Father, I pray that you would use the great tragedy of this virus to arrest our attention. Um, Father, to um, move us from trivial things and, and frivolity. Um, Father, and how um, ignorant we sometimes are about um, the important things of life. And I pray that you would use this 
to draw people to you, to call people back to you. I pray that you would use this to to sober us, Father, and to consider the significance of our lives more seriously. Father, I pray simply right now that you would use your word to inform our minds. pray that you would use your word um, to illuminate our minds. I pray that you would use your word for someone, um, Father, to give them a new mind and, and a new heart and to bring them from death to life. Father, we are here because of your son, Jesus Christ, and we can live because he is alive. Father, I believe that with all of my heart, and I believe that your word is true. And Father, I desperately want uh, people who do not know you to hear that good news and to be saved. Father, I cannot do that. Father, anything, my best of sermons is uh, weak at best. Father, help me now, please. Help the preaching of your word. Help us to focus. Um, I pray that your word would do its work on our hearts. We ask and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Right, I, have a, I have a hard time spending money. I say that I am frugal. Uh, some would maybe say that I'm cheap. I especially have a hard time with big purchases. So when Melissa started talking about needing a new phone, I did everything that I could to put that off as long as I could. I don't like spending money. But it was a reasonable request. She's had an old iPhone 7 for three or four years. It's not really working. The Wi-Fi doesn't work. We have limited data, so that's a problem. Plus, I mean, I moved her here to New York City away from her family. Sorry, Grammy. I convinced her uh, to have four kids. I I convinced her to homeschool those four kids. I convinced her to direct a co-op of some 40 other kids. Uh, You know, a working phone seems like a fairly reasonable request. And so last weekend, I bit the bullet. And on Tuesday, it arrived, a beautiful, brand new, shiny iPhone 11. Not the Pro, my cheapness still reared its ugly head. But either way, a grand gesture and a grand gift for my wonderful wife. And do you know where that million dollar iPhone 11 is right now and what it's doing? Nothing. It is sitting on my kitchen counter, not even touched, not even opened or unwrapped for six days. Why? Well, because my wonderful wife is also a notorious phone dropper. And while Verizon is still sending its big purchases quickly with two-day shipping, because of the pandemic, Amazon has super-delayed all its non-essential shipping, and so she's waiting for her phone case to arrive, which may still be in a couple of weeks. She will not even use or even take her shiny brand new phone out of the box right now because until the case arrives, and she uses those thick tank cases that would protect a phone from a bullet, until that case arrives, her phone is not safe. Are you safe? How can you be safe? And how can you know? That's the question that Romans 8 seeks to answer. And you've probably heard me joke before that I'm waiting until I grow up to preach the book of Romans. I cannot wait, but I don't think that I'm ready. I don't think that you should be allowed to preach a series on Romans until you're at least 40. Because it is such a wonderful and profound book. And my great struggle right now is to resist going back through the whole thing and preaching the whole book 
from the beginning. I cannot do that. I want to do it, but I'm going to try to stick to chapter 8. I told you earlier in the week that I was only going to preach on three verses. My intent was to only do verses 9 through 11, but I just, I couldn't do it. So you're getting all of 1 through 11. So look at it there. I want you to notice how chapter 8 begins and how it ends. And this will give us a good idea of what it is about. The very first verse, one of the great verses and great promises in all of Scripture, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The very last verse, 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you safe? Those verses sound pretty safe. No condemnation, no separation. But before we can appreciate that we have to before we can appreciate that, we have to understand that there why there would ever be condemnation or separation. The promise of no condemnation doesn't sound that appealing if I don't know that I'm condemned. The promise of no separation doesn't sound that appealing if I don't know that I'm separated. And here's where things often go wrong right from the start. Why is there death in the first place? And why do we get so upset about it? Why is it so terrifying? From the world's perspective, from a secular perspective, death should be the most natural thing in the world. Why then are we so bothered by it? Look at verse 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's that last part that I want to draw your attention to. I want you to see the connection there between sin and death. Because it is only Scripture that explains both why there is death and why we are so terrified of it. And the answer is sin. Paul has said back in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 25 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And scripture is clear from beginning to end that there is death because there is sin. The existence of death is a direct result of sin. And your experience is clear. You are a sinner. And I shouldn't have to convince you of that. Uh, you know that it is true. I know that it is true for me. And it is this truth, the fall of man into sin, that I believe gives the only convincing narrative of the perversity of human nature and of the brokenness of this world. And so I know that for many of us, at first glance, this doctrine probably causes great offense, but once considered and accepted, it makes total sense. 
of the entire human condition and of your condition. You experience guilt and shame. You have done things that you would not want anyone to know about. You know that you do not live up to your own standard for yourself, much less to the potential standard of a good and perfect God. Our world is so confused right now, and our world cannot understand death because it refuses first to admit sin. But death starts to make a lot more sense once you start to understand who God is and what we have done. We have all of us rejected and rebelled against him. We regularly say here that sin separates. And you get this. You've experienced this. You've experienced some sort of relational rejection or betrayal. And the pain that that causes, the divide and separation that creates. Consider a time that you have been greatly sinned against. Betrayed by a friend, slandered. Uh, maybe you've experienced the miserable pain of an unfaithful spouse. Think of what that does and what that feels like. This is what sin does. And this is what every single one of us have done uh, to God. I think it's hard sometimes to get our minds around this in our current uh, cultural situation because just the message is you're good, you're good, you're good, you're great. Don't worry about it. Okay, we know it's not. True. Imagine like a perfect mother who has done everything and given up everything for her son. She's worked three jobs to provide for him. She's lavished him with love and attention. She's worked hard to get him into the best schools. She's saved and scrapped to set him up and to leave him with a great inheritance. A perfect mother who has done everything, poured herself out, out of love for the good of her son. She birthed him, fed him, protected him, provided for him, taught him, prepared him, blessed him in every possible way. And then imagine that son in response on his 18th birthday, turning to this mother and saying, I hate you. I don't trust you. I want nothing uh, to do with you. Um, I want the money, but I don't want you. And how horrible and offensive would that be? There's something within us that cries out. We recognize, wait, that's, that's wrong. That's unjust. Look how kind and good and generous this mother was. And look at what this son has done in response. What a terrible person. Right, this is what we have all done uh, to God. The God who is the infinitely uh, better God than this mother. And that is why there is death. There is death and there is sickness and there is suffering and there is coronavirus in this bruised and broken world because of sin. And the God who is good and glorious and gracious and kind, who made us, who made us good to know him and be in relationship with him, we have all rejected him and in so doing rejected goodness. And since he is the giver and creator of life, when we reject him, death rushes in. So in verse 2, we see that we are all of us born under this law of sin and death. A perfect God created a perfect people for perfect fellowship and relationship with Him. You can summarize the whole book of Romans with one word, righteousness. Listen, that's the only way to be safe. The righteous God created His people to be righteous with Him. You have to be righteous to be in relationship with a righteous God. But as we read, none is righteous. And not righteous means that you cannot be with God. God is life. 
Thus, not being with God is death. The wages of sin is death. Why do you think everyone out there is out trying to be a good person and to prove themselves? Why do you think we all have to grandstand on Facebook and talk about all the good things that we're doing and demonstrate our goodness uh, to the world? Why do you think every other religion basically teaches the same thing? Here's what you need to do to be good. And if you're good enough, if your good outweighs your bad, then you'll be all right. And then you'll be safe. Wrong. The law says you must be righteous as God is righteous. God is perfectly righteous. Therefore, the standard is perfection. You must be perfect, but you cannot do it. Thus, death. Sin equals death. And that's, that's the bad news. You know, I know I spend a fair amount of time there on the bad news, but I, I'm convinced that here's, this is often where we go wrong right from the start. The good news makes no sense without the bad news. All this death makes no sense without the bad news. I was pretty depressed uh, Thursday night. I was watching, a, I flipped on the news for a few minutes. I was watching a famous pastor on CNN one of the most famous and successful, air quotes if you can't see, uh, pastors in the world. Um, he was interviewed, and he could give no answers. He could give no hope, and he wouldn't even give the gospel. And I think it's in large part because he wouldn't admit this first point, that there is death because of sin. That's not very popular, Um, So he spent his time talking about how much we have to help one another and how God lives in our hearts and how God is in the goodness of the people's hearts. And he talked about all the great things that his church has done for 40 years. And he talked about how God has to sit back when there's something like this because of his most precious gift to us is our free will and all kinds of just nonsense. He offered no good news because he refused to admit the bad news because I think he was embarrassed to do so in front of Anderson Cooper and, and Sanjay Gupta. He, he, he wouldn't do it. There's bad news. There is death, and it is ultimately only because of sin. And if we miss that first point, we completely miss the significance of the good news. But look at the good news. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Stop there. There's the gospel in three words. God has done. That's the gospel. The bad news is what we have done. The good news is what God has done. What we have done, as we've seen, was sin. So look at what God has done. He sent His only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's the gospel. What we could not do, God has done for us. Uh, We create a problem. We have a sin problem. We could not solve our sin problem. What has God done to solve our sin problem? He sent His Son. Jesus Christ, God Himself, God the Son, who takes on flesh, that's Christmas, who becomes a man, who becomes one of us in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? He comes like us. Why? It tells us, and for sin. 
He comes to solve this very sin problem. And how does he do that? He dies. How does he defeat death? He does it through death. The wages of sin is death. You owe death for your sin. The gospel is that instead of requiring that death from you, God himself has provided that death for you. Jesus Christ came specifically to take on your sin and then to die that death you deserved in your place. You deserve to die. Christ dies for you. That's the gospel. You are a sinner. Christ is righteous. Christ dies. You live. Gospel. It's the great exchange. It's substitution. It's Jesus in my place. We create a problem. Sin. God solves the problem. Substitution. And look at what happens. Remember verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. What? How? I know that I am a sinner. A great sinner. I feel it deep in my bones. I know that I am guilty. Some of you feel that within you. You know that you have done wrong. You know that you are guilty. I know that I am not good. How can I not be condemned? End of verse 3. He condemned sin in the flesh. You see, I am not condemned because my sin has already been condemned in Christ. And what's the result? Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Righteousness. And there's the theme of Romans. You must be righteous to be in relationship with a righteous God. You are not righteous, but Christ is. And in taking your place, in taking your sin, He gives to you His righteousness. Therefore, that perfect standard, that righteous requirement, you must be righteous to be with a righteous God. That requirement is fulfilled. Not because you are righteous. Not because you are good. You are not. And I am not. But because Christ is. And so he is the only answer to the readiness and the safety question. Is it safe? Only in Christ. Are you ready for death? Only if you are in Christ. Well, how does that happen? Well, notice some repetition here. Start looking ahead into verse 4, on into verses 5 through 8. You'll notice there's a whole lot of flesh there, and there's a whole lot of spirit in those verses. 21 times the word spirit shows up in this chapter. That's a lot. This chapter is about the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice the, the contrast in these verses in 5 through 8 between the flesh and the Spirit. It begins to happen there at the end of verse 4. It says, all this happens, all that we just talked about, Christ for us, giving us His righteousness, thus solving our sin problem. This only happens for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And it's this contrast that he unpacks in 5 through 8. Okay, so a couple points here. When you see flesh, don't just think body as if the physical is bad. It's not. That, that's not Christian. We're the ones that are very pro-body, pro-biology. Scripture teaches us that we are our bodies. They are part of our identity. We don't get to change them at will. We can't be one thing on the outside and decide we're something else on the inside. No, our bodies are part of who we are. 
They're part of our design, and they are very good. So when you read flesh, don't read physical, read sinful. The flesh is the human nature corrupted by sin. It is that within us which is fundamentally opposed to God. It is humanity corrupted and controlled by sin. And when you read spirit, notice that most of the time, we'll talk about this in a second, most of the time it's capitalized. And so generally in this chapter, when you read spirit, read holy spirit, God the spirit. I don't have time to get into it in detail right now, but the God of the Bible is triune. He is Trinity. He is three in one. There is one God, not three gods, but that one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons in the one God. Can I perfectly understand that? Nope. There is some mystery to it, which we should expect. God is not like us. He is God. If my little finite brain, which cannot even get the names of my own children correct, could completely exhaust and understand the nature of the creator God of all that exists, well, then he wouldn't be all that great. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, summarized in seven statements. You want to talk more about that, shoot me an email and I'd love to to go through it with you. But right now, I just want you to remember that the Spirit is God Himself. And so notice that there are two groups of people here. There are two ways to live and only two. You are one or the other. You either live according to the flesh or you live according to the Spirit. And here's the basic idea that Paul is trying to communicate. Flesh is death. Spirit is life. It's pretty simple. Look at verse 5. We need to sort out how you can tell which group you're in. If flesh is death and spirit is life, well, it's pretty important to know which you are. Five gives you a good test. Where is your mind set? Here's a basic Biblical principle, belief precedes behavior, mind determines life. So the lifestyle of the flesh flows from a mind that is set on the flesh. But what is the dominating and determining influence in your life? Where is your focus and your attention? What are you most deeply interested in, always thinking about? talking about, pursuing, uh, living for. As we talked about maybe last week from Psalm 84, what is your appetite? What do you desire? A pretty simple test here is checkbook and calendar. That can tell you a lot about who and where you are. How do you spend your time and how do you spend your money? What is the general orientation of your life? What is your mind set on? One of the things we keep praying is that God is going to bring some great good and blessing out of this whole uh, experience. And we know that he will, um, but, but not for everyone. One of the great tragedies, and ultimately I think great judgments that will result from this thing, is that we have been given extra time, we have been forced to stay home, we have been given this wonderful opportunity, confronted with death, to seriously consider life, and how we're living it and what we're living for. And do you know how many people are using that opportunity? Do you know what is exploding and spreading just as rapidly as the virus? Porn. 
There have been all kinds of headlines about the explosion of both porn production and consumption. Well, there is a very literal example of the mind set on the flesh. Death everywhere. Maybe I should take this seriously and consider the reality of my impending death now or sometime down the line. Am I ready for that death? Eh, I'll continue to participate in the enslavement, objectification, and abuse of women for my own personal pleasure instead. What is your mind set on? Where is your focus? Why does it matter? Because of verse 6. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Come on, guys. Let's think, people. Listen, world. Listen to that verse. Isn't that what every single one of us wants right now? Life and peace? Actually, though, it's, it's not. We want our own physical life and protection. We want our own personal self-determined peace. But we don't actually want what is offered here in this verse. Because if we did, we would pursue the only one in whom it can be found. The Spirit, God Himself, because He is life and peace. Which makes the set of your mind very, very important. Because if it's set on the flesh, you get death. Because if it's set on the flesh, it's not on the God who is life and peace. So you get death. Because, look at verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Brothers and sisters, everyone listening, don't miss this. I, I think everyone is missing this right now. It seems that much of the church is missing this right now. Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Period. And so if that is you, if this is the category that you fall into, and there are only two categories, then you are not safe. You are not ready to die. And you should be terrified of this virus. The world should be terrified of the virus. I get that completely. Uh, you are the son who has insulted, distrusted, cursed, and rejected the kind and generous mother. And so what do you expect? If you reject God, what do you expect to receive from God? Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Judgment before a perfect God based upon His perfect Standard. Anything short of that, any sin gets judgment, gets death. And not physical death. That's the first death, but it's not the worst death. That is the second death, spiritual death. And I've had a couple conversations lately, some with Christians, that lead me to believe that man, we don't often get this, and we don't always believe this. There's a lot of, well, you know, God is love, so, you know, you, you never really know. And, you know, he was a pretty good person, and, you know, he went to church sometimes, so, you know, no, I don't. Sure, I, I cannot see someone's heart. Praise God, I am not the judge of someone's heart. Only God can. Only God can do that. But Scripture is very, very clear. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, is 
death. And if that hasn't been remedied, if there hasn't been new life and repentance and faith, then the result is the first death leading to the second death. And if that's true, and if God's word is true, then we cannot hide this. We cannot minimize this. We cannot avoid talking about it because we're embarrassed. People are dying. And scripture is clear that everyone who dies apart from Christ dies eternally. And verse 9 confirms this for us. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. I don't, don't miss sometimes the shortest words, the most important words. Don't miss that little if. Notice the condition. How can you know? What's the difference between group one and group two? What really is a Christian? Most fundamentally, it is this. A Christian is one in whom the Spirit of God dwells. That's the mark. That's the difference. That's the difference between death and life. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? That's the only way that you can be safe. That's the only way that you can be ready to die. I don't care if you're a good person. I don't care if you're feeding the poor. I don't care if you've prayed a prayer or been baptized or go regularly to church or don't drink or do all the other bad things. I don't care about any of the things that we tend to look at as the markers of a Christian. I care only about this. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? I meant to only preach on these three verses, uh, but I utterly failed because... I've just been so burdened and convicted that most of us have no idea what to do with death. So many people who would call themselves Christians have so little understanding of what the Bible teaches about sin and the existence of death. And so a famous pastor can go on TV and say nothing about sin and nothing about Jesus Christ and nothing about the need for repentance and faith in him. We We just don't get it. The church doesn't seem to get it. Front page of CNN.com yesterday. Some churches you can tune into on Easter Sunday. Uh Uh-oh. I I knew before even clicking that link that it wasn't going to be good. Uh, These supposedly evangelical suggestions. Uh, Joel Osteen featuring Mariah Carey. I wish I was making that up. I'm not making that up. Um, And then Stephen Furtick from Elevation Church down in Charlotte, uh, right by where I grew up. Uh, Luke 6.26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Woe to you, Joel Osteen and Stephen Furtick. Matthew 7.15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. If you are for some reason in God's providence listening to my voice, please do not listen uh, to these men and many uh, men and women like them. Uh, They do not get it. Uh, They do not preach the gospel. They do not know the Lord. They are false teachers. They are wolves. And they can offer you no hope. If CNN is recommending something for you related to our faith, then you can know that it is false and untrue and unhelpful. Don't listen to them. As, as Carl Truman wrote in an article uh, this week, in the past, people did not go to church to be made happy and feel better about themselves. That's what all these men exist to do, is to make you feel better so that you'll give them their money. 
Now, he says people didn't in the past go to church to be made happy and feel better about themselves. They went to have their misery explained to them and death explained to them. It's important for people to fight the virus. It's important to feed people. But listen, that is not the task of the church. It is the church's task to prepare people to die. And the church at large is failing. It's not even talking about this. And so I wanted to focus only on 9 through 11 and look at all the good news in verses 9 through 11 for those of us who are in Christ. But I'm just overcome with this sense that we are not doing the main thing that we are meant to do. We are not actually dealing with the problem of death around us because we refuse to admit the reality of sin. There is much death surrounding us and there is death only because there is sin. And let me qualify and let me be clear. Does that mean that each person who gets the virus gets it as a punishment for some sin in their life? No, of course not. That's not at all what we are saying. Jesus specifically addresses this. Go and read Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 this afternoon. A tower has collapsed. It's killed 18 people. So Jesus asks, do you think that they, those who were killed, were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, that's not the point. What's the point? What's the lesson of all of this death? What should we take or draw from this? Jesus tells us, verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Remember, in saving lives, we're ultimately just delaying deaths. All death is ultimately a result of sin. We cannot go beyond that and claim this is happening because of that, or that this is God's judgment because of this or that or the other. Lots of guys are trying to do that right now. Don't listen to them. They've, they've missed the point. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We know that he is sovereign. We know that he is providentially working in all things. We know that he judges sin. But we're not supposed to try and read into that and claim to know everything God is doing in every specific instant. We don't know. The point is that this should all cause all of us to sit up and pay attention. This is an opportunity for all of us to repent or we will all likewise perish. So please take this seriously and please hear and heed God's word, especially if you are not a Christian, especially if you just stumbled onto this feed and are listening for some reason. The wages of sin is death. You either belong to death or you belong to God. And so go back to verse 9. The condition, the difference is the spirit. How do you get that spirit? How does that happen? Well, at first, it's only by the grace of God. Remember, we summarized the gospel up in verse 2. God has done it. He does it. He takes our dead hearts and gives them life. He changes our minds. We then see the sin that we so formerly loved and we begin to mourn for it and we begin to hate it and we turn away from it. That's repentance. And then we believe, uh, we trust, and we hope and put our faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. Go back today, if this is grabbing you at all, and go read Romans 3, 4, and 5 on faith. We do nothing. We only receive. We believe. We, we put our faith in the Christ who took our sin and death to give us his righteousness and life. And if by God's grace you do that, good news. Let's close 
with good news. Francis Schaeffer used to say if he had an hour with someone on a train, he'd spend 55 minutes explaining the bad news and five minutes explaining the good news. So I'm in good company. Good news. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Man, I wish, I wish we could spend forever here. I really want to. Um, I wish we could just do this all day. Uh, and that is such a wonderful verse. Go meditate on that verse today. Christian, I am speaking to you now. I've been speaking to you the whole time, by the way. We, all of us need this gospel always. It's not for the non-believer only. The good news of our forgiveness and acceptance in Christ is for all of life. But listen to me now, especially, here's why we're not afraid. Here's why we're safe. Everyone is afraid of death right now. But notice what verse 10 says. We're already dead. The body is already dead because of sin. And so, hey, that thing that we're so scared of, in a way, has already happened. Everyone is the walking dead. Sin has killed the body. But, but, here's the difference for us in Christ The Spirit, I don't have time for it, there's debate here, I think the ESV is wrong, you see how the Spirit is capitalized there, I don't think the Spirit should be capitalized there. The contrast in verse 10 is between our body, and then we would expect the second part to then be our Spirit. And if that's correct, and I think it is, here's the good news, even though your body is already dead, and we know that it is, that our outer self is wasting Away, No gym. I've been having to run outside and my knees are killing me. And in God's providence, I keep stubbing my toes for some reason. And two of them are broken. I can barely walk. We're all falling apart. So again, sure, save life. But we're really just delaying death. Physical death, that is. Because, though, we don't have to worry about that. Because if Christ is in you, the Spirit in you is life. Which means that your soul is safe. That's the most important thing because your soul is the most precious thing. Your soul that goes on into eternity, that must be your first concern. Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his own soul? What will it profit a man if he self-quarantines for eight months and protects his health? Or what will it profit a man, a woman, if she gets the coronavirus but recovers and gains her life, but they forfeit their own soul? The life of the soul is found only in Christ who is life. But hear me here. If you think about this, we're not concerned just with the soul. We're actually more concerned with the body than everyone else. We're actually more concerned with the body than all the social justice warriors, than all those who seem to only believe that the church's responsibility is to meet physical needs. No, by caring first and foremost for the soul, we actually care more about the body because of verse 11. Happy Easter, 
church, and you know I don't love Easter. There is no Easter in the Bible. We are Protestants. Every Sunday is the Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, here is why we don't have to fear virus. Here is why we don't fear physical death. Because if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, Jesus is alive, physically, bodily. The good news is not just that Christ came to take our sin and to take our death. He did do that. He did die, but that wouldn't have been good news. That wouldn't have been enough. The good news is that he died, but he didn't stay dead. Because he couldn't stay dead. Because death had no claim on him. It had no hold on him because he never sinned. Because he was God himself. And so in Christ, the author of life willingly submits himself to death. He kills it. He destroys death. He defeats death through death. And the thing we celebrate this Sunday, and again, every single Sunday, is that Up from the grave, he arose. The resurrection life of Jesus Christ is very, very good news at a time like this. A time of death. Because it is his bodily resurrection that guarantees our bodily resurrection. And if the spirit is in you, if it is in your dead body now, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise you from the dead and give life to your mortal body. We care most about the body. And this is a promise that's guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. He's alive. And if he is, then that changes everything for the Christian. That is safety. That is security. There is no condemnation. Verse 1. There is nothing that will separate us from God's love. And death cannot touch us. Because it already touched him. And then he beat it. And he banished it. And he destroyed it. And so surrounded by physical death. Even in the epicenter of the epicenter. Facing death. Which should be the most frightening thing. We do not fear. Because Christ has already faced it for us. And he won. And he's alive. And knowing him is life. Do you know him? Because if you do, there is great joy to be found in all circumstances. Even difficult ones like these. We can go from strength to strength. We can delight in being stuck in our homes and the opportunity that we have been given to be with our families and to be in the word and to listen to more sermons and to meditate on the things of God. We can rejoice because we know that death does not have the final word for those who are in Christ. We are safe. We are ready. Are you? That's the only question that matters. We cannot deny uh, today that death comes for us all. Are you ready for it? I'll close with John eleven twenty five and 26. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray.
Father, I am very thankful for your word. I am very thankful for the privilege of proclaiming that word. Father, I am humbled by the opportunity uh, to proclaim that word. Father, I am very, very much reminded right now of my own uh, weakness and and insufficiency uh, for this great task. But I am very thankful uh, that you are powerful and that you are more than sufficient. I'm very thankful that your word is living and active. And Father, so my only hope now is that you would do your work through your word. Um, By this spirit, Father, by your spirit, um, take these words, Lord, and apply them to our hearts and our lives. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are stuck at home, who may be fearing, uh, who may be experiencing some anxiety. I pray that you administer to them great comfort, comfort and hope and joy in the reality of the resurrection and what that means for them and their safety and their security in Christ no matter what. Father, for anyone who is listening to this for whatever reason, either right now live or later on in a recording that does not know you, Father, convince them that death is serious and that death is coming and that death apart from Jesus Christ leads to suffering, leads to to hell, leads to eternal separation from you. Father, save sinners. We're so thankful that you are not only judge, but that you are Savior and that you have provided for us the way that we can be right with you and that we can be forgiven. Father, you are so loving and kind and gracious to do for us what we could not have done for ourselves um, to while we were yet sinners and while we were your enemies and why we hated you to come after us to die for us in Christ, uh, to rescue us. Father, I pray that that would be the defining uh, reality of our lives. And Father, I pray for your church, not just this church, but your church at large, especially here in America and in the West. Father, forgive us um, for our failure to talk about sin and death and, and the hope and life in Jesus Christ. Help us to actually be the church in this time, to do what the church has been called to do, is to prepare people to die. Uh, by pointing people to the one who has already died for them, uh, defeating that death and and giving us life. We thank you for that, and I thank you for this opportunity. And I pray all of this only in the name of Jesus. Amen.